If you have a Bible and you do because there's one in the pew rack in front of you, the scripture for today is on page 1583. It's Mark 15, starting in verse 16. And if you're already there because you're a super Bible flipper, you might want to flip over to Psalm 22 and put a marker in there because I'm going to read that whole psalm later. All right, Mark 15, starting in verse 16. The soldiers, the soldiers led Jesus away into the place that is the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again, And again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes. And they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was about the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. The word of the Lord. I'm just going to tell you just straight away that preaching on the crucifixion is not easy for us pastors. We just, every year we preach on it. Um, but I think that's sort of the, the problem for somebody preaching on the, res, on the crucifixion is about the same thing as for us to hear a sermon on the crucifixion. We feel like we've heard that. We know this. We've heard that read at church before. Or we generally have some idea about what on earth it's about. Um, but what I want to talk about today is um, what the affect of the cross should be on us. Not just the effect of like our salvation, but what, how, should, how should it sit on us? Um, even though I, some, I sometimes talk about myself as a person without emotions, um, what should be the emotional impact of the crucifixion of Jesus? How should it make us feel? What should it do inside of us? And what effect should that have on everything about us? I remember when I went to seminary my first year, um, you're supposed to come into the seminary I went to with a year of Greek already. And so I went in and took this course that they call suicide Greek, which is a year of Greek in 14 weeks, or in six weeks. And so, so you do a, whole, a year of Greek in six weeks, and then you go right into Greek with everybody else. And so <clears throat> I got through that and was still married, and then I went into 
the, uh, the first class that they call exegesis. And um, one of the things they have you do is they just read parts of the Bible in Greek. And one of the things that they always have first-year students do is to read the crucifixion narrative in Greek. And I didn't understand why they picked that passage. It's in John. The Greek's not that difficult, and so it makes sense. But one of the things that I think the professors knew—this professor, Doug Moo, teaches at Wheaton now— is that— Here's the amazing thing about reading the Bible in another language Is you have to slow down So words that you just read over in English You've got to let, stop and go, okay, what is that word? What does it mean? And I found myself lots of times reading the, when I read the Bible in Greek Flipping to my English Bible and wondering if it says just that in the English And it, and it almost always did It was just I had had to slow down enough reading it in a foreign language you know, it was great that it was also the original language, but it's also a foreign language. So, I, and I, as I would, I went through, I found myself in my, in the library, just really deeply affected by reading the description of Christ's crucifixion, just because I had to read it slow. And so when it said that Jesus was hit with a staff on the head again and again, I just read over that in English, but when I read it in a foreign language, I had to say again and again, and it registered, and it did something to me, and, and, and I, I think that's what we want. What we, what we want to have is that kind of experience where something happens where what we just feel our way over or glaze our way through or think that we know but doesn't have any, any gravity to it anymore. Um, we want, to, we want to have a continual sense of the gravity of the death of Jesus. Because, because you could just say, okay, well, why is that so important? Well, the reason it's so important is because what we're prone to emotionally is self-pity. That's what we're good at. I don't know about you. I, well, here, I do know about you because you're just like me because we're both human beings. We're fantastic at self-pity. You want to know who I'm best at empathizing with? Me. I, I know exactly how I feel. And it's touching. And life is hard. <laughs> you know? But we don't really do a very good job of, a job of empathizing with others. We don't watch the news and get moved to tears, you know, over our over, over dinner. I mean, we're not just eating like mushroom-filled ravioli going, oh, those poor people in Africa, they're just still poor. We don't do that. We, the, the empathy is gone. I remember when I was a kid, apparently, I, I don't remember this, apparently when I was a kid, I went to my mom and I said, Mom, I want to give all my money to those poor kids in Africa. So she like opened up my little piggy bank, little monkey piggy bank, and took my money out and sent it to Africa. And like two weeks later, there was like another commercial about poor kids in Africa. And I was like, Mom, did you send all my money? She's like, yeah. I said, and they're still poor? She's like, yes, honey, they're still poor. <clears throat> but I don't get affected like that anymore. I'm 34. I don't get affected like that anymore. It's, I, I've seen it enough times. I've been there. Enough, do, it just doesn't, just doesn't do it for me anymore. Same thing when I've been to India. I go to the slums. About the first day, I walk through the slums. I'm looking at all these kids that are basically dying in their own filth, and, I, and I'm really deeply moved. About 12 hours of that, about 12 hours of that, I'm just emotionally numb the rest of the time I'm there. I don't feel anything. I don't feel anything. Because you just, I just can't. I, it just, I get overwhelmed. It's kind of like the smell. Like, I don't know if you've ever been on a mission trip like to Africa or India or someplace. But, but the minute they open the doors on the plane, you can smell the country. And I just cannot wait until my nose stops registering it. You know? 
But that's what happens with the crucifixion. That's what happens with the death of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. Isn't that wonderful? Let's put a cross up and put lights behind it. It's very classy, right? And then we come in and we go out and— But if we don't do something about this, if we don't emotionally connect with the cross and the greatness of what Christ has done more than we pity ourselves— we will never have the motivation to turn out from ourselves. Something has to affect us emotionally greater than our effect on ourselves if our hearts will ever turn out to God and our neighbor. And honestly, friends, I think the only thing that has a chance at turning us out is this. If the crucifixion of the Son of God cannot turn us out, I don't know what can. I don't know what can. <clears throat> There's this hymn by Isaac Watts. He wrote in 1707. It's, I'm going to read some verses, just a little bit of it for you. It's, it starts out, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity. Grace unknown and love beyond degree. And then these, these two verses. Oh, sorry. We're going to just skip that. Oh, where am I? It says this. And then he says, Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. Right? Okay, it does say in the Bible, the sun stopped shining when Jesus died. But what, what is, what Isaac Watts is saying poetically here is he's saying, that was the right thing for the sun to do. That when the, the mighty maker of the sun died, it was the right thing for the sun to just stop shining. But he's, he's trying to come up with something big enough to say what it means that Christ died for us and for you. And then he says, Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes with tears. The, the, the problem is, is that we are so desensitized to all of this sort of thing that it doesn't really have a deep effect on us. A couple, a couple weeks ago, Lexi and I and Adam all went down to give blood at 102.5. They were having a blood drive, and we went down there. And um, it's funny because I've probably seen 500 murders on TV this year, right? Approximately. So I'm theoretically desensitized to violence. But then what happens when I actually come, go into the— what do, they, what do they tell you when they stick a little piece of metal in your arm? What do they say? You may want to look away. <laughs> and every time when I see that needle, I go, I may want to. <laughs> and that time, because normally I feel pretty tough. I mean, like, I'll be like, I'm pretty tough. I'm going to watch. That's how tough I am. I'm going to watch. You stick that in my arm. Like, I can't even pull out my own sliver, okay? Like, that's how bad. That, but listen, think about where that puts us in relationship to real gore. We are theoretically image and digitally desensitized to the sort of fact of the thing, but we are so sterilized from any real brutality that we don't ever really face it. I mean, how many of us have been beaten unconscious by somebody in our lifetime? I mean, how many of us? You know, probably 12, 13 of us. I mean, I've never been in a real fight. 
in my life. So one of you all should just do me a favor and just start a fight with me and just beat me up and just so I can feel it and have experienced what it's like. I have dental now. It's okay. Yeah, right? Yeah, Brian will take me down. Um, you'll probably take me down. Um, so anyway, the, the point is, is that you, because, and so because we're so separated from brutality, we're so desensitized to it and sterilized from it, then somebody explains what happens and it doesn't do anything to us because we've never been there. We've never done that. It's never happened to us. We don't know what it's like. And so we tend to want to just understand it theologically rather than <clears throat> practically. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is— I want to I want to look at four ways to look at the cross that I think will help us increase the affect of the crucifixion of the Son of God on our hearts, okay? Um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great preachers of the 20th century, said, um, I am after the hearts of my people, but I always seek to access it through their heads. So I'm going to argue for how you can think about the cross so that it will affect your, affect your heart. Does that make sense? Okay. The first is you have to know what the cross is, first of all. You have to, if you don't know what it is, it will never make sense. And the cross was an act of substitution and therefore an act of love. It is, listen, if you know any verse in the Bible, it's probably that one, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There is no gore in that verse, okay? There's no gore in that verse. And I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say something straight out. One of the reasons why I'm not, I don't talk as um, effluently with language of love of God, love of God, love of God, as some people who talk about God do, is because I don't think we even hear it. I don't think it means anything to us. And so, so we can read a verse like this, and we can go, that's nice. Lots of people love me. Um, and it's, it's not until you put this in the context of what it means by gave. The key word in that, in that sentence is gave. And if you don't know what gave encapsulates and means, then that whole sentence doesn't mean a whole lot. Um, and Mark's gospel— if we, as we've been going through it, um, is encapsulated by this verse in chapter 10 that I talked about some weeks ago where it says, um, where Jesus is saying, listen, you need to—don't lord, lord your leadership over people. You need to serve one another. And here's why. Because me, the great leader, right, he said, instead, whoever wants to be great among you has to be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave. Why? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, right? That's what he says. Now, um, here's the, here, one of the problems is, is that um, ransom in our vocabulary has a negative connotation. Usually some evil person steals somebody, right? And so the holder is a criminal. And, and ransom has always had that as one of its meanings, but it's also had as one of its meanings, particularly in the ancient world, the idea of a rightful capture. That is, for example, for purposes of debt. So if I owed somebody $150,000 and I was sold into monetary slavery, right, because there was no bankruptcy, because I actually owed it. You can't just write that off. Then I would have—if somebody was going to pull me out of that slavery, they'd have to ransom me. They'd have to pay my debt for me. 
And if somebody else paid my debt, one of my kin or my family members particularly, that person had to release me because he no longer had a claim on me anymore because my debt was paid. Ransom had both connotations. It could be negative or positive. And so therefore, the, the, and this is the only statement in Mark's gospel that explicitly interprets what the cross is about. Here's why this is important. If you talk to really educated theological types, oftentimes they can be prone to, you talk to like a New Testament scholar or something like that, they're prone to talking about theories of the atonement. Right? Well, the death, the death of Jesus means many things, and it, it does mean many things in the sense that there are lots of applications and lots of ways you can understand it. But Jesus does not leave his death open to interpretation. He gives us an interpretation of it. That is, the interpretation that it is a ransom for your life. Okay? Now, the reason why people have said, well, but that's just ransom theory, is because in the early church, the earliest church fathers believed that um, a ransom had to be paid um, to somebody who had a claim on you negatively. And so they understood this in relationship to Satan. And so ransom theory got associated in the early church with Jesus paying a moral ransom to the devil. And the reason ransom theory fell out of favor was— in almost every other place in the Bible, it speaks of Jesus dying to fulfill the justice of God, not the claim of Satan. And so people are like, well, that's not all that's going on there. But that's not what Je Jesus does not refer to Satan in chapter 10. He just says ransom. And what a ransom is always is a sacrificial exchange for the life of another. It's always that. And that's what Jesus is saying, is he's saying that here's what my death is going to mean. It is going to be sacrificial because you always have to pay something, right? And the payment here is his life. It is an exchange because somebody's held captive and there is an exchange. This person could never be released without the sacrifice. So it's a substitution for the life of another person. It's always that. And so when Jesus says his life is a ransom for many, he's saying it is a sacrificial substitution. His death is a substitution for your death. His righteousness is a substitution for your unrighteousness. His selflessness is a substitution for your selfishness. His obedience is a substitution for your idolatry and sin. His love is a substitution for your coldness. His dependence is a substitution for your prideful independence. He is substituting himself for everything that's wrong with us. And it is always a sacrifice, and it is always a substitute, and that is love. That is love. And so then you can go back and say, for God so loved the world— that he gave as a sacrificial substitutionary ransom for us so that whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. The result of this—sorry, I have too much here. Um, the result of this is not just a substitution and not just— um, that he's taken sin away, and not just that he's, he's made us right with him, but the ultimate result here is reconciliation. The ultimate result of the love giving is the love desiring. 
God was willing to give partly because he wanted to reconcile us to him. In the, in the Old Testament, when God is setting up the tabernacle to create a physical picture of what it means that he is Lord and they are not, he has them build this thing called the tabernacle, which has outer courts and there's a holy place. And all this is built with like lamb skins, right? But there's one part of it between this place called the holy place where people have to be consecrated to go into, but people can get in there. And what's called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And there's a, a curtain that divides the two. And this is the description of it. Make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim worked into it by silk skilled craftsmen. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of Acadia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Testimony behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy place. So it's a beautiful divider. People could go in and they could see that curtain and it was beautiful, but it was also a monument to the fact that you can never go in here. You could never go in here because there is a fundamental separation between what is really holy, what is at the heart of God's glory and justice and truthfulness and honor, everything that we were meant to enjoy with ever-increasing fullness is separated from us. We're not just separated from God in that we'll be punished. We're separated from the one great treasure of the universe. And everything that we enjoy out here, we're just playing around with mud compared to what's going on behind that pretty linen woven curtain. And he says, and you can never come in. And the atonement cover, the thing that will make atonement, is in there. And this is what it says in Mark's gospel when Jesus died. It said, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry he saw, and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. See, the result of our Jesus' substitution and his expiation and his propitiation and his all these things that happened in the cross was his reconciliation to bring us together with God through faith. And faith alone. And so you have to understand what the cross is before you can value it, before it'll have an effect on you. The second is um, emphasizing his suffering while remembering that he was totally able to remove himself from it. Um, there was a, a, a couple of theologians in England who became fairly famous in the last decade by referring to the cross as cosmic child abuse. So they said if God gives his son for the salvation of the world, it would be like a father sending his son out to, you know, his kid out to die for these other people. It's fundamentally child abuse. And so it's ugly. It's not beautiful. Now there's two, there's obviously two really easy fundamental problems with that. If you really want to say that the cross is ugly, you're going to find a way. But the Son and the Father are one, first of all. But secondly, Jesus isn't a kid child. He's a grown man child. It's like a father who's a general turning to his son who's a colonel and saying, son, that hill has got to be taken or all of our men are going to die and everybody we love is going to get pillaged. I need somebody I can trust to take it. And he goes, I want it just as bad as you do. Just say the word. 
It wasn't that the father wanted to send the son and the son didn't want to go, but the father told him to. The son wanted to go just as much. He shares the exact same heart. He just like, say the word, I'm ready. He wanted to give himself as much as the father wanted to give his son. There's a child. But, but one of the things that, that we have, a, have trouble with is that a father would even send his grown son to that. I mean, but in the, in the tradition of the Christian church, there has been a focus on the gore of the cross. I mean, remember, in, some of you remember in 2004 when the movie Passion of the Christ came out? Remember that? The, and it's like, just was like, a lot of gore. <clears throat> and um, in the Catholic tradition, some of you are from church. I don't know if they have this in the Lutheran church. They, they probably do. But do you remember um, going to church as a kid, if you were Roman Catholics, and there were the stations of the cross all the way around the church? It was, I was like 12, I don't remember how many stations, but you, I mean, you would actually go through and, and at, and during Holy Week, you would actually go through all these different stations and you'd be like, that's where he fell the first time. And then he got up and he kept going and then he fell there and then they brought in Simon and then he went here and that's where they stripped him naked and here's where they rolled dice aside who got his clothes while he was watching them and dying. And there's where, and you'd go through each step and each station remembering that happened. That happened. That happened. Right? There was, um, there was criticism of that movie, Passion of the Christ, when it came out, because some folks in the media trotted out some New Testament scholars to say, you know, the New Testament writers really do not focus on gore in their writings of the crucifixion. They really focus more on the theological meaning of Christ's death. They could dwell a lot more on his suffering, but they just don't. They, they focus on what it means, not what it was. And so we shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't go to movies like that. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't. Okay, listen, that, it, that is true partly in the sense that um, the, the gospel writers make me really clear the theological meaning of the cross. And they, do, they play all this irony and metaphor, and there's lots of cool stuff in there that you can— mine out of there over time. But listen, all I have to say is read it in Greek or Spanish or whatever you're, you know, like if you know, just, just read it slow. And listen, you know, I think, I think you're going to find that it would have had to have been a horror novel to have been any worse. And the problem is, is not they weren't graphic enough. The problem is we live in such a sterilized culture. We don't know what any of that means. I mean, in that culture, all he had to say was they crucified him. And you would have walked by 50 or 20, 30, 40, 50 crucified people in your life groaning and dying on a cross. You don't need somebody to tell you, now here's what they do, and it's very uncomfortable. You wouldn't need that. You would have seen it. And I mean, what could Mark have done? Now, when, they, when the soldiers had Jesus, you know, they were making sport of him in the back room there. They hit him again and again and again with a staff. I mean, what? What do you want from these people? It's horrifying. And so, yeah, there are other emphases, but there is an emphasis on gore. And there is an emphasis on when Jesus said, Peter, don't you understand that one word from my mouth, and I could have had 10,000 angels here. One word. I mean, there's this, there's this contrast between the suffering of Jesus and the willingness of Jesus and his absolute ability at any moment along the way to be relieved of it with one word. I think that's all I have, time I have to say about that. Oh, no, I, I have to say a little bit more, but I'm not going to read all of Psalm 22 so we can finish. 
Anyway, um, one of the verses in Mark, in all the Gospels, that really puzzles people is, is this verse in verse 34, where it says, at, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A lot of people struggle with that verse and they say, you know, what does that mean trinitarianly? Was the, you know, was God not one for a minute or was Jesus really abandoned on the cross? And then we come up with like something pious to say like, well, because our sin was on Jesus, the father had to turn his face away and Jesus was alone. And so he was, you know, or, or, or it'll take you in another direction. I mean, um, uh, Some people have seen that as a reason to believe that Jesus realized at the end of his life that he wasn't the Messiah. Which is, which is, which isn't right. (laughs) But some people have said that, that he, that he thought that if he challenged Rome, things would happen. There would be the great rebellion. He would be the Messiah and he would become the Messiah King. And then it didn't happen. So he's on the cross. He says, God, why didn't you back me up on this? I did exactly, I fulfilled all the prophecies. Exactly. So what? A lot of people, some people have come to think that. Some very intelligent people. But here's here's what you need to know about that. Um, Almost all of us can quote things that are cultural artifacts that we know about. And if I say a little bit of it, you know the rest and you know the context, right? So let's play this game. Ready? You finish the quote. These are movie quotes. I'm going to make an offer. Right? Toto, I don't think we're. Go ahead. I love the smell of. Yep, rosebud. That's that's the whole quote. Sorry. It's <laughs> an artsy one for you there. You're gonna need a bigger boat. That's from Jaws. So, like, I mean, these are just they're just movie quotes, right? Some of these are. 35 years old, 40, 50, 60. I don't know how old Citizen Kane is. That movie is old. And, um, and you kn- a, b- a bunch of people knew him. People who are movie buffs. Now listen, we have a corpus of cultural knowledge exponentially larger than people in biblical times. People in biblical times grew up on the Bible. And especially they grew up on the Psalms. Because they heard them every week. All the time. Read them day and night. They'd sit down at dinner, they'd read a psalm, they'd re- but they didn't have it, so they'd have to recite it, which means they had to have it memorized. There was an archaeologist um, friend working, uh, who's an Old Testament scholar working in Jerusalem, and they, unco- they were uncovering papyrus, and they pulled one out, and they dusted it off, and he read the Paleo-Hebrew on it, and the, the Arab worker with him said, oh, that's Psalm 42. Today. I mean, this is recently. Oh, that's Psalm 42, yeah. Just from a couple lines of it. And so when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, sorry, I had to skip the Bible. The Bible want game was to do it with Bible verses. And so you guys who didn't make it on the movies would have, would have felt better about yourselves on the Bible verses. I, I just, let's just go with me. Um, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is quoting the first verse of a psalm. Okay. And listen, if you were hanging by your hands and suffocating, you would not either have recited the whole thing, okay? It's 40 verses long. So if you want to know if that's true, like five of us will sit on your chest and you can try to recite the whole psalm. I mean, it's hard enough just to get this verse out, okay? But do you know what it says? 
A Psalm of David, the king, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I am not silent yet. Oh, verse 3, it's already turning. It's all, it's verse 3. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. And you, our fathers, put their trust and trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. People, it says, in three times in four verses here, people heaped insults on him, threw scorn, mocked and mocked and mocked. Now he, he quotes, they did this to David, who trusted in God. Remember? Scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, and the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Do you get it? Like, they had just said that. They had just said, you're the king of Israel. Come down from the cross. And he goes, <coughs> Psalm 22. It says it right here. They say about God's anointed one, if God loves him, let God deliver him. That's pretty, that's pretty slick, right? Like, I'd like to think I could come up with that when I was dying, okay? It would not have happened, okay? Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open wide their mouths against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax and melted away within me. My strength strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O oh Lord— be not far off. Oh, my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers and the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn for. He has done it. 
it's, it's a very sad irony about how we don't read our Old Testaments or even read our marginal notes. My, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is the triumph quote of the cross. It is the sealer, it is the predictor, it is to show that everything has been set in motion by God. It tells of the future of missions, world evangelization, the ultimate glory of God, that the rich and the poor will all be in one great ultimate assembly, praising the name of the Lord, that all these things will happen through the suffering of God's afflicted one. It's all right there. And he just quotes the first verse of it. Third, Understand the depth and seriousness of our need. So I'll say a couple things about this real fast. Your appreciation for how bad you are will be proportional to how well you can enjoy and be affected by the cross. Just flat. If you will not accept the doctrine and the reality of your own personal sinfulness, selfishness, and depravity, you will never have the affluence of gratitude and joy that comes from being freely forgiven. There's a place in John 7 where this basically prostitute lady comes in and cries on Jesus' feet, and there's a Pharisee sitting there, and the Pharisee says, is thinking, ah, if this guy who was touching him, he wouldn't let her. And Jesus says, she says, um, there there were two guys, and both of them, owed debts. One was much bigger than the other, but the guy who they were owed to just canceled them both. Which one do you think is going to love that guy more? And the Pharisee goes, well, probably the one who has a bigger debt canceled. He goes, absolutely. He who's forgiven little loves little, but he who is forgiven much loves much. Here's, here's the problem, though. Um, yeah, there's probably people more sinful than you out there, but it's much more likely you have, we have no decent appreciation for the depth of our own depravity. We're so committed to psychological self-help wellness ideologies that make us feel like we're pretty decent people that we have no capacity to really apologize, to see our own selfishness, to see our own depravity, to see how ruthlessly we put ourselves first, to see how terrified we are to sacrifice and suffer for others because we are number one. We are our own idols and we will serve ourselves. The minute you let that go and the more over time you really see the depth of your own wickedness, the more glorious the cross becomes. The bigger the debt was canceled. And when it says that Jesus was taken to Golgotha, Mark, see Mark's writing to people in Rome. They don't know about Golgotha. And, they, and so he says, it's the place of the skulls. If you go to Israel, there's this, there's this, there's this place called um, uh, this is by the garden tomb, and some people have said that this is the place of the skull. See the face? It's a skull. Um, and that's a really, co- it would be really cool if that was true, because it's right by the garden tomb, and the garden tomb is so nice, but it's just probably not true. Instead, in the city of Jerusalem, in the modern-day city there, where the Temple of the Holy Sepulcher is, because it's not the place that looked like a skull. It is the place of skulls. It is a garbage heap, a dump of human flesh of the dead. It is a place where human bones lay strewn about because insurrectionists and rioters don't deserve a burial. It is the place of dying. It is the place of suffering. It is the place of execution. It's the place of death. And so, and so Mark doesn't want to just leave it in Aramaic because some of these Roman readers may not understand. He says, Golgotha. It means in our language, the place of skulls. 
It's the place of death. And that's where Jesus goes because that's what your sin and my sin costs. Now, fourthly and lastly and quickly is, um, sorry, that we need to be pulled apart by the character of the one that died this death. That's different from how much he suffered. Um, Let me try to say it this way. Um, When I watched the film, The Passion of Christ, none of you probably have seen it, it impacted me, but not as much as I thought it would. And one of the reasons why I don't think, I, I don't think it impacted me more was because it wasn't the whole story. You see, by the time we get to this passage in Mark's gospel, we have been spent, we have spent 15 chapters falling in love with the character of Jesus, if we've been paying any attention. He is the noble one, the gentle one, the caring one, the transparent one, the honorable one, the good one. He, I mean, he's, he, he's telling, he, he's picking up prostitutes out of those kinds of lives. He's, he's raising dead pe- children. He's, he's facing off against corruption. He's looking religious leaders in the eye and telling them it's not going to work. He, every, in every turn, he does the great thing. And, and nobody's like that. And he's like that. And he goes way beyond it. And, he's, and when he understands things, and when he teaches them, and you're like, yes, why is that not so that simple? Why don't I act like it's that simple? Because it really is that simple. And all, so every chapter, and it builds, and it builds, and it builds, and it builds, and it builds. And what ought to affect us is not just the gore of the cross, but the who it's being done to. It's not just the powerful one. It's not just that it's a huge amount of gore, and he was powerful enough not to be part of it. It's that everything about the cross is a reversal of everything that would be right. Right? It said, I mean, it says— They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him and called out to him, Hail the king of the Jews. And they mock him as king. He is the king. He is the best king. He is the only king anybody could ever want. And they're making fun of him as king. It's a total reversal. Or where it says, And again, again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. I mean, think of the brutality of that. Have you ever tried to like, have you ever tried to kill something? Like, have you ever had to like kill a rabbit or something? Or even like a mouse and be like, I gotta crush his skull if he's really gonna die. Like, you, it, why? Because we have this sensitivity. There's a sensitivity where we don't want to crush somebody's skull. But these guys are like, give me this staff. And they're doing it, they're not just doing it to a man, they're doing it to the sensitive one. They're doing it to the one that for all his manliness, little kids would play around him. And he could laugh and put his hands on them and bless them. And he could go to somebody who was totally morally and personally broken and lift them up. And then he'd turn around and be hard as steel when he had to fight against corruption. He is the sensitive one. And how could you be more insensitive than to spit on somebody and hit him repeatedly after they had been flogged on the head? Like the whole idea here is not just that it's being done, but the one to whom it's being done. They, they crucified him and they divided up his clothes, right? If you're dividing up his clothes, that means somebody's done, right? 
But the one who has no future is our future. He is the future of all who believe. And they treat him like he has no future. It's over. Just let's, let's, let's trade up his clothes. Who cares? He's dead. It's the cruelty to the gentle one, the punishment to the innocent one, the intrigue against the transparent one, the treachery against the loyal one, the betrayal against the devoted one, the injustice to the only just one, the envy to the only generous one, and the mockery to the sincere one. It is a complete reversal of everything good, and if we see the beauty of the Savior, we will see the ugliness of the cross, which will bring us back to our sin, which will bring us back to its gruesomeness, which will bring us back to the fact that it is a sacrificial substance Institutionary ransom, and it is love. And only by seeing the weakness and the melted heart of the crucified one will we ever have a strong enough heart to turn out from our self pity in ourselves, to have our heart really turned towards God and our neighbor to really be changed, to really be transformed, to really be the sort of person who cares more about God's passions than our own passions, that loves God's desires for the world and for us more than our own visceral desires. It's the only way for there to be enough spiritual momentum and strength for us to obey Jesus, to live the kind of life he's called us to, to be more like the beautiful one, the great one, the one who substituted himself as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for being the crucified one who went to the place of skulls and bones to rescue us from our sin. Help us see our sin. Help us to understand the need of your substitution and your sacrificial ransom for us. Help us to connect with and really see in some way the depth of the gore that you faced willingly. And help us to see your beauty amidst the ugliness. Help that, help that painting to be so contrastive to us that it dissolves our hearts in thankfulness and melts our eyes into tears. And help that to change us, to really turn our hearts out from ourselves, away from our sins, against our idols, and towards you and our neighbor. Let your act of love fill us with love, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.